0: Let's dive into the message, Uh, I'm excited. Uh, We're starting a new series, it's titled, Wake Up. Everybody say, wake up. Woo, okay, okay, I guess I gotta wake up, that's a little intense. Uh, Wake Up to Your Responsibility is, is the title of my message. And now, the heart of this series, we're gonna do about four or five weeks, is throughout scripture, there are times in the Bible where the church or people, the Bible says, fall asleep. And really what that means is they get complacent and they stop living their purpose, and the Lord keeps on going, hey, stay awake. Don't don't fall asleep to your purpose. If you fall asleep, sin will pounce on you. If you fall asleep, your community will suffer. There's this church in Revelation, it's uh, the Church of Sardis, and each church has another name to it. The Church of Sardis is titled The Dying Church. They're the dying church because basically they have fallen complacent, they've become more like culture, they really don't care about the things God mandated them to care about. And here's what he says to the Church of Sardis, and I believe he says to every church. Because the whole purpose of this series is we're revisiting our mission as a church. Our mission is to change the world one person at a time. Our mission is to have a sense of urgency to make sure that we understand that we're here to worship God and to love people. So it says this in Revelation 3: remains and is about to die. Basically, everything that you have, it's falling. You gotta, you gotta wake back up to your purpose, strengthen what remains, what's going on in your life. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. You look at that Greek word, and unfinished really means, he's like, you, you've missed the bar in what I've called the church to be to this this place. And the reason why you've missed the bar is because the first thing that it shows is you've stopped love. Because love sets the bar for everything. It really does. When you love God, it literally compels you to forgive. When you love God, it compels you to give. When you love God, it compels you to serve and sacrifice. You have fallen short of love. You don't love me anymore. You're barely like, you're not even intrigued with me anymore, you're a dying church. says in Proverbs 24, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, a little complacency, and poverty will come on you like a thief. I believe this. When the church becomes sleepy, when the church becomes complacent, poverty pounces on a community. Relational poverty, emotional poverty, financial poverty. Jesus chose the church to be the vehicle that would change a region. So when the vehicle stops running, everything suffers. So today we're going to wake up. We're gonna wake up to our purpose. We're gonna wake up to our responsibility. We're gonna wake up to the things God would want us to wake up to. I was reading a study and I just, I, I, love, I love studying. I, I, this week as I was getting to read some of my favorite uh, theologians, Wearsby, R.C. Sproul, Keller, I mean, you name it. I was like, I get to study your word, Lord. What, what a gift this is. And one of the things I gotta study was just how churches in America are doing and why some churches fall asleep and why they're dying. And these are some things that are rhythms that basically connect these churches. First one is this, no sense of urgency. The churches that are dying, they have no sense of urgency anymore. Basically, the, 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 the wealth of this world, it says, will choke you out. And in an American culture where, you know, 25% of the wealth, 4% of the population, the richest nation in the world, it's a very uh, big temptation for us for wealth to choke out the purpose of our life. And if you've ever seen a choke out, it's not a knockout. Oh my gosh, what happened? It's not one of those UFC things. It's where somebody grabs you and it's a slow process of falling asleep. And so the sense of urgency stops. And really what happens is it starts to be, I just want to come to church. I want an uplifting word. I want to feel good. I want nothing bad to happen to me. And I just want to be on my way. That is not urgency. That is complacency and selfishness. Urgency is, man, I got one life. I want to change the world this week. And when I come to church, I want to love people. I'm gonna worship God this morning, and when I leave this house, I'm gonna go change the world one person at a time. I'm gonna have urgency to know that this could be the week that somebody's life could be changed because they met me, they met you. That's urgency, do you hear what I'm saying? Second one is urgency for the wrong things. Churches start to get really um, preference oriented. They start to get really urgent about rules and the way of preference, how they do church. And they get upset when they don't do it their way. And they're like, hold on a second. Uh, they like the first thing that really fires them up is sounds too loud or too quiet, or the lights are too bright or not too bright, or the room is this or that. And like, that's what's gonna control your thoughts and your emotions. And when you come to church, when you live your life, there should be urgency and the right values. We value the Lord, loving the Lord with all our soul, our mind, our strength, and we value people. We wanna love people. That's what we, that's what we want always at the top. And last but not least, know how I got internet here, but I'm getting emails. What? Um, it's like, I'm not connected to the internet. Is there a new type of technology in this? Um, number three was very interesting, but it said your affection for the past is greater than your excitement for the future. Your affection for the past is bigger than your excitement for the future. Hey, love the past. I wrote this. I wrote, love the past, be thankful for the past, learn from the past, but don't worship the past and don't live for the past. Well, we used to do it like this two weeks ago. Well, hey, we're, we're, we're walking to a new city. Let's walk around the walls seven times again. No, God did that one time. He wants to do a new thing. We're not walking seven times again. We're not going to fall in love with just one way of doing things because we did it in the past and be so affectionate about it. We're going to be excited about the future. We're going to be excited. Today is a new day. It's a new service. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Oh, Lord, wake us up today. Wake us up to our, to our promise, awakens to our purpose, awakens to our value, awakens to how much you really love us. Oh, awaken, awaken us, Lord, the ones that maybe have fallen asleep a little bit. Well, I, I speak in the name of Jesus, wake up. Lord, this church, may we never fall asleep. May we always revisit the vision and never, ever stray from the vision of the church. Not mission church, but the church. Lord, we love you. Everybody said? All right, so we're going to be teaching out of—it's uh, a rowdy crowd today. I'm cool with it, though. Um, we're going to be teaching out of Luke 10. And before we get into Luke 10, I love setting up uh, a verse. It's always good to have context. So the book of Luke uh, is uh, one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And the first nine chapters basically unpack the attributes of Jesus. And what I mean by that, it just talks about who Jesus is. Jesus' love. It talks about what he cares about, those kind of things. And so the first nine, it kind of almost sets who Jesus is. But then chapter 10 comes around. And the next about seven to nine chapters in chapter 10, it's Jesus basically saying, this is how you do it. I'm going to show you how to live the mission. So he sets the vision, basically in the first nine chapters of basically this is what I'm all about, this is what I care about. And then chapter 10, he starts to live the vision and challenge his disciples around him to live the vision. And we're going to pick up at the Good Samaritan, but I want you to hear this real quick. Right before the Good Samaritan, the first thing that Jesus challenges the church, the disciples of the church, is he goes, go out and share the message of the gospel. People need to know that there is a king that is here to save them. So the gospel message, the church is mandated to just share the gospel message. So the first thing he tells them, hey, go share the gospel message. So they go out and share the gospel message. They come back and they report, man, this is epic. You know, we we were walking in authority that we never knew we had. It's an amazing moment. And so after they share the message, Jesus is now going to challenge them to live the message of the gospel, which is the good Samaritan story. Okay, you're talking about it, but now I need you to live it. And I would say to you, one of the biggest complaints on the American church today is people see us talking all the time, but they don't see us actually living the gospel message. And so my prayer today is that we would be challenged to live a gospel life, that when people see our life, they also see the goodness of God through our actions. And so let's pick up in Luke 10, uh, uh, verse 25. And just to give you a heads up, Warren Wearsby, a theologian, say that Jesus has shown us the church's greatest responsibility in this moment, and it's taking care of the one. It's it's taking care of people. It's a loving God and loving uh, people. And so uh, this expert in religious law, and really religious law, it would have been like a seminary professor in our day. Because he wasn't actually a lawyer, but he, he was an expert in religious law. And they're always coming up to Jesus and asking Jesus questions to trap him. If you're wondering why they're always trying to trap Jesus, is because a lot of the religious leaders thought that Jesus did not respect the law or honor the law. Not because he was actually breaking the law, but because he was breaking, hanging out with those who were actually lawless. He was loving people like Zacchaeus, and they'd be like, oh, how could you be nice to Zacchaeus? He's a lawbreaker. How could you talk to people like that? How could you have meals with people like that? And what's devastating to me is that the religious leaders thought that you weren't even allowed to talk to sinners. How do you reach them if you can't talk to them? And so that's why they always want to try try to trap Jesus. It's just because he hung out with them and loved them. He loved them where they were at. There's a a sermon in that alone. On uh, this occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test slash trap Jesus. Teacher asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the reason why he asked him that, because he was trying to trap him, well, how's that a trap question? They're watching Jesus hang out with all these sinners, and they're thinking that he might say, just, just kick it. Just hang out, man. All good. Like, like, you know, why stop sinning if I keep forgiving? I'm Jesus, you know? That's what they're hoping he'd say, because they want to trap him to show, okay, you don't care about the law. But that's not what he does. Jesus actually traps him back. What I love about Jesus' traps is they're traps of always love, they're like a hug. It's like, like when you walk up and, and when you're younger, and your dad hugs you and you're like, oh, stop hugging me, dad. And then he just keeps hugging and then finally you just surrender to the hug. You know what I'm saying? It's like a trap of a hug. Like, oh, all right, I love you too. You know, my wife actually traps me with hugs, to be honest, um, and I eventually surrender. Um, so Jesus traps him back with this question. So he doesn't answer him. He answers him with another question. Well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Now the law, just to give you a heads up, 700 laws. 700 rules basically, some do's and some do not's. And so they, uh, in this culture now, they have summed up the law and just wants to know how he sums it up. His answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's it. Let me, the law is not how you get life, it points to life. When oh, here, hear the following rules will not give you an abundant life. Looking at what the rules and the law shows, it will point you to the life giver, which is Jesus. Jesus didn't come to abolish it, it just pointed to him, he fulfilled it. I'm here, the one that gives life has arrived. All these laws were boundaries to point you to it. It's like an MRI scan. You go to the doctor, you get an MRI, oh my goodness, I have a tear in my shoulder. Well, the MRI doesn't fix it. Imagine going to the MRI machine day after day being like, why isn't it fixed? Because an MRI machine just shows you that you need a healer. The law showed us that we need Jesus. It exposed our brokenness. So he goes on to say, You've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Justify himself, a better way to say it in Greek would be this, he's asking him, okay, so tell me why I'm alive then. If you're telling me this is the most, why am I built? Why am I breathing? Why am I alive? And to be honest, the number one reason why humans are alive is to be loved and to love, is what Jesus shows throughout his scriptures. When you are not receiving love and when you are not giving love, you are acting not the way you're built to be. And I believe the reason why we are struggling as a society and we're seeing suicide skyrocket, we're seeing violence and bullying skyrocket is because when you actually aren't built the way you're supposed to and receive love and give love, you become more like a machine or an animal instead of a human being. God wants you to receive love from him and give love from him, do you hear what I'm saying? So he's asking, what does that look like? Tell me why I'm alive. He goes on to say, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So he saw him and went on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to, uh, to a place in Psalm, passed on to the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. A Samaritan was the lowest of the low in society. Jesus could have said a Jew came by, but he said a Samaritan. And I believe he did that for a number of reasons. He's trying to break down race walls also. Even in biblical times, the enemy would use race walls to divide the church and divide the gospel message. And Jesus was always breaking down race walls. Goes on to say... He went, uh, he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey, his horse, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of a, the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise, stop. Every time in the prodigal son, and stories of the Bible, I always wanna know, like with the rich young man, when he, when he walked away from Jesus because he didn't follow Jesus, he wanted to keep his riches. This man, I always wonder, like, what happened to him? But the thing that I've realized when I read scripture is that I actually am the person at the end of this story. How am I gonna to respond to this story? If I'm a religious person, how do I respond to this? Do I walk away sad and frustrated, or do I go, man, I need to change? In this story, there are four types of people, and we're gonna talk about them today. One is the robbers. The robbers are in this story. Second one is the robbed, the ones who have suffered from robbers. The third one is the religious people. The religious people are in this story. And fourth is the Redeemer. Because the good Samaritan story, if we could just really see it, it's pointing towards Jesus again, is Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. We were ones who were robbed by sin, broken. We couldn't get off the ground by ourselves. Jesus came by. He saw us. He saved us. And no, he did not pay for us to stay in a Motel 6 for a couple of days. He paid the price so we can stay in heaven for the rest of our life. Do you see that picture? So my prayer today is that you would not have the mindset of a robber. Because we're talking about mindsets. The Bible talks about being, having your mind renewed by uh, the, the, the word of God, the way you should have the mind of Christ. It's called uh, sanctification, vivification, mortification. And so our minds should be processing like Jesus's, not like ourselves or like the world, but we should have the love of Jesus, the process of Jesus. And so I want to actually highlight each person in this story, and I want you to diagnose who you are in this story. And maybe, if I'm being honest, we've, all been, we've been all four. At least I've been all four. And what I mean by that is, man, I want to be the redeemer. I want to be just like my savior. I want to be the person that pays the cost. I want to be the person that opens my eyes to the broken. I want to be the person that understands, I know it's going to take an investment and energy, but man, I never want to walk by the broken. I always want to be about the one. Jesus was about the one. I want to be about the one. So let's look at the first person in this story, the robber. So who is the robber? I believe the robber is just sin. It's, it's, It's what sin does. Sin's purpose, simply put, is to steal from you. That's, that's it. That's all sin wants to do. Think about what sin does to people. Sin is sold as pleasure, but then it spins around and it steals from you. Look at studies who people who fall into lust and start to literally try to find their pleasure in lust, online, and everywhere else. The studies show that it steals from the intimacy of marriage and also studies from their own physical ability to enjoy real pleasure. Sin will steal from you. Look at wealth. When wealth is perverted by the enemy, it steals from you. It becomes a thing that wants to basically bound you up and have you worry and control you because wealth is either going to be the thing that you put your faith in or Jesus. So sin is the thing that really does break us. We were born into sin, so we were broken. I wrote a couple things down real quick. The mindset of a robber is this, and some of us maybe have this mindset at times. A mindset of the robber is a taker. You just want to take from people. You just want to take You don't add anything, you just grab and you leave. That's what sin does, that's not what a redeemer does. Another uh, mindset of a robber is, you wanna get from people, not give to people. And what I mean by that is, I wrote, robbers even rob themselves. If you have a robber mentality, you even rob yourself of joy. I wrote, if you serve to get, if you give to get, or if you invite people over to get from them, you'll never actually feel blessed in your life. The Bible shows that the Lord doesn't bless a uh, grudging giver, I'm gonna give to you so I get from you, he blesses a generous giver, somebody who has the, the posture of not a robber, but somebody has the posture of redeemed. I've been blessed, now I get a blessed back. Think about it. Have you ever been in somebody's house where like they come over and they want you to hang out with them, but they're like, yes, mine, mine, finally, people, and they're just going to take from you, and it's just, you can feel it. They don't want to bless you, they just want relationship from you, but they don't actually want to give you relationship back. I've met people that I've served with that they serve to get praise. They serve to get value. They serve to get noticed. And when they do those things, they never feel the blessing of actually serving. When you serve in the right posture, not the mindset of a robber, you'll be blessed. You have to come and say, man, I'm going to give because I was given too. I'm going to serve because I was served. I'm going to love because I was loved. That's the mindset of a redeemer, not a robber. Do you hear me this morning? Second one is the robbed. I believe all of us were at this moment in our life before we got saved. And what I wrote simply down is when the enemy stole from Adam and Eve eternity in the garden. And so then we were broken in sin, and Jesus had to come save us eternally. And so all of us were broken right there, boom. None of us could save ourselves. Jesus saves, He saw us, He came, He died on a cross conquered death and now we say yes to Jesus we literally come to life and we can walk to our destiny we actually live in heaven today heaven is not when we die heaven reigns today in our life do you hear what I'm saying and so so you have this mentality of the robbed though what, what does it look like to be the one that's robbed hey puppy <laughs> get out of here <laughs> um, okay we love dogs I just don't like them during service that's all uh, let's go okay let's proceed so the mindset of the robbed, though, at this moment, when you are completely robbed by the enemy, is you are laying there broken, you can't get up yourself. And Jesus helps you, he puts you on a horse, and he literally, again, he leads you to salvation, leads you to promise. But what's interesting to me is people have the mindset of robbed. I call it the victim mentality, and I wrote a couple things down. People have the uh, mindset of being robbed, is basically they, they think about their offenses, they think about how sin hurt them their whole life. Because what happens now after you've been saved, the enemy still wants to try to rob from you temporary things. He wants to steal heaven from you today. And so when somebody calls you a name, somebody physically hurts you, abuses you, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to steal things from you. But God's the ultimate redeemer. But if you allow a moment to mark your life, you basically let that offense consume your thoughts. You think about offenses instead of your redemption. The Bible says that let the joy of salvation be the thing that's on my lips and on my mind. Return return to me the joy of my salvation. The thing that you should meditate on is not the offense, but you being saved by Jesus Christ. Amen. But when your mindset's on offense, it steals everything in your emotions and your mind. Your mind should not be on the fence. Your mind should be on your savior, yes? Second thing that happens with somebody who's been robbed is you see life through an offense. I remember when I was a youth pastor and I would have you know, a youth girl and she would just hate all men. You know, like, like, like her, She had a terrible dad, the two guys she dated, and so all men were just evil. Like A guy would walk in she'd be like, oh, Satan's here. And I'd be like... <laughs> no Satan's not here that's a great kid he loves the Lord she's like oh what you don't you don't know man you know like dang girl who hurt you hug I want to hear this real quick if you see life through offense you will never ever see what Jesus wants you to see you'll never see promises you'll never see opportunity you'll never see blessing all you will see is what the enemy wants you to see you have to put on the grace of Jesus, the lens of grace, the lens of love, and to see things the way God sees things. Because what happened is the religious people, even the robbed people, they would see somebody like a Zacchaeus, somebody like the Samaritan woman, somebody like the adulterer, and they would just see this grossness and darkness and sin, and they say, kill it. But Jesus, with the love of God, would say, I see potential in that person. I see that person becoming everything I created them to be. I see peace and joy and blessing in their life. Mindset of the robbed also is you tell everyone about your offense. We aren't ca- called to share our offenses with people. We're called to share the gospel with people. Man, if, if you are somebody who operates as the robbed, you always just talk about offense and the hard things instead of actually what Jesus is doing. I'll have lunches with people sometimes, and I'll walk away feeling like the world is about to crumble because all they do is talk about everything bad going on. I, I get that there's always something that there's a burden to a season, but man, there's so much beauty to talk about also. Doesn't mean we don't talk about those things, but we don't live for those things. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yes. Let's keep going. Then there's the mindset of the religious. The mindset of the religious. Now, let's, let's picture this real quick. You have two religious leaders walking by somebody who is beaten down and broken, and they walk on the other side. And you got to understand even the geographical thing, they're walking from temple to a temple, basically, is what uh, they show geographically. So these religious leaders are probably walking to another service, and they're probably going to answer some questions probably answer the question, how can a camel fit through the eye of a needle? Because here's the deal. Religious people are always answering questions that helps nobody. Think about it. They're like, oh man, that guy is broken. Let's tell him the Greek word for restoration and just walk on. He doesn't need the Greek word for restoration. That man needs to be restored. Religious people want to correct everyone instead of connect with anyone. And so my prayer today is that you would understand that these religious people had the opportunity to connect with this person and to play their part, to be like their Savior, to be like Jesus, to be love. but instead they walked past because they were ready to correct everybody maybe on some theological, heretical thing that they thought was wrong. My prayer is that we would not be a religious church, that we would not be fixated on answering the questions, of, well, hold on a second, what's your view on these two things? Man, I don't want to ask questions just so I know an answer. I want to ask this question. How do we reach this region? Amen. How do we help broken families? Amen. How do we help the poor? Amen. How do we help the, the the orphans and the widows? How do we help them? Those are the questions I want to ask. It doesn't mean that you don't study your word. It doesn't mean that you don't understand the, the heart of God. But if the thing that fixates you and the way that you walk and talk and process is just religious things, you're missing out on being the redeemer God's called you to be. Yeah. I want to share a quick story with you. Um, and I hope this makes sense to you. Uh, culture is very powerful, even religious culture. <laughs> I, uh, I worked at a church and we were at a wedding. And uh, basically, we had an open bar at the wedding. And there's different people who have different views. All alcohol is bad, don't have a sip. Some people think they can have a drink. It's a different story for a different day. Uh, now, uh, I, my personal view in the word, I think if you have a glass of wine, that's all good. Now, if you have a bottle of wine, we probably should talk, okay? Or bottles. But uh, a glass of wine, the Bible shows it's throughout scripture, you know? Um, so... I'm at a wedding. I'm a pastor, the generational pastor, uh, and it's, it's a bigger church. And and there's uh, a, definitely it's been around for a handful of years. Kind of had a, a kind of a religious vibe, to be honest. And what's happening at uh, at this wedding is people are just having fun. And if you saw me at a wedding, uh, no matter what, I literally dance at weddings. I'll do the yo-yo. Okay, this is the yo-yo, <laughs> straight up. Okay, I got dance moves. I'll do I'll do I'll do the I'll do the fake ball. I'll throw a ball up. And I'll catch it, okay? Uh, And I usually grab my napkin and then I dance with Rachel like this the whole time, okay? So that's what I do, okay? And then I do, I steal the movie from Hitch. I throw it, you know, the Q-tip. I do a bunch of them, okay? I goof off. So a bunch of young adults are goofing off and people see the open bar and I, I was there, I was hanging out, um, and uh, I get calls about, uh, we saw some of your young adults and some of the uh, adults at your church, uh, they looked like drunkards. Uh, how many people are drunk? My phone blew up for about a week about just like this, this. And because nobody was drunk, they're having fun. But the appearance with the open bar and that, everybody's worried. I never had more phone calls in as a pastor than that week, still to this life. I've never had a week of phone calls where people go, man, I was driving down the road today and I saw a homeless person. How do we reach them? I never got phone calls of oh my gosh, I saw a broken family and, and wh- wh- how do we how do we how do we reach broken? I never got those phone calls. And so Rachel and I get married. We go on our honeymoon. Our honeymoon, we're at our first luau, and they're handing out drinks uh, at the luau, and they give a Mai Tai. And to be honest, I've never really been a drinker. Uh, nothing tastes that good to me. I don't think it's evil. Uh, I found a couple of things I kind of like. Uh, but basically, I just, it's never been my thing. Like, I, uh, I remember, like, the first time I had, like, a glass of wine, was like I was 29. I was like, oh, that's not bad. Um, but I just, it's never been my thing. But a Mai Tai, I'm on my honeymoon. I was like, I'll try a Mai Tai. So I take a sip of a Mai Tai. Now, there's eight people around me. Guy next to me, he's a dermatologist, guy to my left. Uh, uh, he was um, uh, uh, a car salesman and another gentleman, another gentleman. And then they're like, what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. And, you know, and I take a couple of sips of my time and start thinking about, like, the, oh, my gosh, they're going to think, uh, wow, the pastor likes to party, you know? Um <laughs> And I was like, oh, they can't think, Uh, I'm a pastor. They can't think I'm drunk. Uh, Okay, I'm gonna stop drinking it. So like, I'm I'm, I'm literally like thinking like, okay, I I shouldn't even taken a sip of this Mai Tai. And so I put it down. And so that's on my mind. And so at the very end, I get up, it's in the middle actually, I gotta use the bathroom and I'm wearing flip-flops and my flip-flop gets caught on the chair. And I literally go like this. I get up and it gets caught. I'm like, whoa, whoa! And I start falling backwards. And this is what I scream while I'm falling. I'm not drunk! (laughs) Everybody looks at me like, did that guy just scream, oh, I'm not drunk. And everybody's like, that guy's drunk. No doubt in my mind, he is, he's wasted. I wasn't, but I was so worried. Who gets up and stumbles except drunk people? I got my, my flip-flop, got caught on my chair, but try explaining that to the whole group of the luau. You laugh because it wasn't you, okay? I look back at that moment. And it's interesting what the Lord brings in your mind in just recent seasons. And I remember that season in my life. I'm sitting around eight individuals for two hours. Do you know how many times I shared the gospel message with them? None. I wasn't worried about saving anybody in the sense of pointing them to the Savior. I wasn't worried about being a redeemer at that moment. I was worried about not looking like a sinner in front of them because I had a religious mindset. And a religious mindset cares more about what people think than them going to hell. Man, I don't want to care about what people think. I want to care about people going to heaven. Amen. I get it. Jesus would do things and people would say, man, that's scandalous talking to a Samaritan woman at the well. That's scandalous eating lunch with Zacchaeus. That's scandalous. This is, these are the terms that they would use for Jesus. But Jesus didn't care what you said about him. He wanted Zacchaeus to be in heaven with him. He didn't care if you said, oh my gosh, he's talking to the Samaritan woman. He didn't care. He wanted that woman in heaven, worshiping with him in heaven, praising his name, being set free and restored. And the thing with the church is we have to turn off. What are people going to think if I do this? What are people going to think if this happens? Man, that is not the way the gospel is supposed to be falling in love with Jesus more than anything else. Can I get an amen? Amen. Straight up. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to finish this. And it's the heart of the Redeemer, the mindset of the Redeemer. So now let's talk about Redeemer. This is all of us we should live here. All of us should live here in, in Redeemer. There's a couple of things you, you, you look at just principle-wise in this story. One is the Redeemer, if you want to be one, make the same mistakes he did, if I could put it that way, <laughs> or make the right decision that he did. First one is in John 4, when Jesus is leading the Samaritan woman to salvation, the disciples come up and be like, hey, uh, is he hungry still? We want to go get food. Uh, they're talking about food the whole time. And he looks and he goes, man, open your eyes. Everybody say, open your eyes. Open your eyes. He says, open your eyes. This, there's a huge harvest just waiting for you to look and for people to be saved. Open your eyes. They say in war to the medics, don't make eye contact with the wounded because you'll care more and you won't move on to the next one. Because if you actually open your eyes to the broken, the Bible shows that the sympathy, the the motivation of the emotional thing, Jesus wants you to open your eyes. He wants you to feel broken for them. He wants your heart to go out to them. And if you actually open your eyes to it, you'll see that people need to be redeemed. So this man walks by and opens his eyes and sees him. Second principle, he does this. He goes, oh, what do I have on me? I got some oil, I got a horse. So he's open to using what he has to to redeem the guy. Whatever you have, God can use it to redeem somebody. The things that Jesus has deposited in you, he wants to use those things to advance his kingdom. So some oil, some other things. We don't even know if the guy was allergic to oil. He just put it on him. It's amazing, but at least he's, he's doing something. Third thing, he was willing to look like a servant. He puts the man on his horse, his donkey, and walks with him. Servants walks next to the person that's on the donkey, not the person that is the one that owns everything. For you to be a redeemer, you're gonna have to take a lower position in what it looks like in culture. You're gonna do things where people go like, man, you're, you're a boss, why are you doing that? Hey, you're, you're, bosses don't do that. No, 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 servants do, redeemers do. You're gonna have to take that posture. And last but not least, it costs him something. It cost him finances. To be a redeemer, it will cost you your time, it will cost you your schedule, it will cost you your finances. You have to open your eyes, you have to open your heart, you got to open your schedule, you got to open up, literally, your wallet to the kingdom and say, Lord, how would you want to use all of this? Do I take somebody out to lunch today, do I pay for the meal? In Luke 15, Jesus keeps on really pressing in how much he cares about the lost and how much he cares about us reaching them. In Luke 15, it shows the sheep, the coin, and the prodigal son. And the son, I want to finish with, because I feel like it ties in fantastic with this in the heart of Redeemer, is because Jesus over and over again is trying to show him how much he wants to redeem people. In in the, the sheep one, he's showing the priority. Hey, this is my priority. 99 sheep, one lost. I love these sheep, but my priority is to reach the lost sheep. This is my urgency. This is my sense of urgency. It needs to be your sense of urgency. Second one, the lost coin. It shows how much effort it takes. Oh, you're flipping up the house. You're trying everything. You're looking everywhere. And so finally you find it. It's going to take energy on your part to reach the lost. It's not just going to be like, oh, yeah, I was just drinking a coffee. And somebody goes, tell me about Jesus. Oh, interesting. That's not how it works. (laughs) It also shows the heart of it. Once you find somebody and you call people, you celebrate with them. Because people who have been redeemed want other people to taste what they've been redeemed from. People have been blessed want to bless other people they do they, they taste like oh my gosh you gotta experience what i experienced and then the product where the son comes home instead of him going out and getting the lost every single time it's always going out and getting going out and encountering going out and loving but this is the one time and i believe it's to the church and it's to us today where the son comes to his senses and comes back home and i want you to hear this real quick i've always wondered man like okay why did he run to his son of course love and you know, you've heard me talk about this, if you've ever heard me preach on this at all, is he pulls his robe up and runs to his son. First of all, a patriarch would not do that in Middle Eastern times. That's, that, that was a female attribute. You don't run as a patriarch, you walk. You don't pick it up like a dress and run. That, that, that's shameful. So even the first thing he's bringing, he's bringing the, the, the shame on him instead of his son, but he sprints to him. Let me tell you about culture back then. That son walks back to this culture And culture would say to that son, we're supposed to stone him to death because he brought shame on the family. The law was gonna kill him, love was gonna save him. And the father said, I gotta get love to him before they get this legalistic culture to him and kill him. And I want you to hear this real quick, culture will kill people, the gospel will save people. And we have to sprint at the sons and daughters and say, I see him, I see, I see him coming. I see him coming. And we sprint to him and say, the world's not gonna get to him. I'm gonna get to him first. I want grace to get to him first. I want love to get to him first. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It doesn't mean that Jesus would just this is why the religious people drove me nuts. He wasn't just saying, I love you so you can just live this way. No, every time he loved somebody like that, it changed the way they lived their life. They said goodbye to sin and yes to righteousness. And the religious leaders still want to talk about religious things. Catch this real quick, and then we're done. The father says, "Slaughter the fattened calf. We about the party." I want you to catch this. I don't know. I'm I'm not a farmer. I'm not a handyman. But I know that a fattened calf takes time. You no, know, it takes investment. You got to feed that thing. Especially back then, that was an, the most expensive meal you could have. Those were that was a rarity. And I like to think, as you look at that story, that the father would go out and feed the fattened calf sometimes. And while he's feeding the fattened calf, he's telling that fattened calf, yo, just so you know, when my son comes home, we about to party. And the the calf's like, what? But he would invest, and he would invest some more, knowing that there would be a moment when the son came home that they would slaughter and celebrate because who was lost is now found, who was dead is now alive. Mission Church on a Sunday morning, why people come and wake up 5, 6 a.m. and set all this up. This is our and calf, if I could be honest. We invest in this, people give finances. It costs thousands upon thousands of dollars to run church just a month. But here's why we do it. Because sons and daughters are coming home. 138 people have said yes to Jesus in four months at Mission Church. Come on. We will never, ever fall asleep to why we are here as a church. We are not here to entertain. We're not here to get you comfortable. We are here to celebrate sons and daughters coming home. We're here to see disciples raised up and say, man, we've been waiting for you. We prayed for you this morning before you were here at 8.45. We prayed over each chair saying, whoever sits in this chair, bless them. Whoever comes in here, they don't know the Lord. Lord, I pray that they get saved today. We prayed for you before you were here. In small groups, we're on our face during worship saying, Lord, we pray for salvation. A thousand sons and daughters to come home to your house. I believe this. There is an opportunity in the Bay Area. Oh, there is an opportunity of all opportunities to see something that's never happened before. There's never been a revival ever in the Bay Area, and I always think, Lord, why not us? Lord, you, you, your your heart is for your kingdom to come. Your will be done, and the vehicle you chose was the church. Well, Lord, Mission Church is yours. It's not mine. It's nobody's. You're the head of the church. May we be faithful servants. May we wake up to our responsibility that when we walk out of these doors, if somebody's hurting or broken, man, we share Jesus with them. I want to share. Uh, I want to share a practical way to do this because a lot of you may be walking around like, oh, dang, so now for the rest of my life, every every person I walk by like, oh, hey, hey, you. And like, you you get like 10 steps for the rest of the day. Here's what it looks like, I believe, to operate. I just want to give you practical steps. I think it's very important. You are not called to meet the emotional poverty of this world. And what happens a lot with us is we get Messiah complex. You're not called to be everybody's best friend. You're not called to be somebody's uh, financial provision doesn't mean that you don't bless people. Jesus is called to be people's best friend. Jesus is called to uh, um, overflow people's emotions and, and to be the one that meets their emotional poverty. Jesus is the one that's supposed to be the provider. He will use us to compliment it, but we are not the source of it. And so as you go through this journey of your life, man, get people to Jesus, get them to their best friend, to their father, to their savior, and then play your part. There are going to be some people that are going to want to take advantage. They'll never, ever want to leave the rod. They're always going to want you to put them on their horse. They're always going to want you to pay for them to stay in the inn. That is not good Christianity. That is lazy Christianity. People need to be discipled and be challenged. Get off the horse. It's your turn to go get somebody out of the inn. Stop being a robber. Start being a redeemer.